So unity of the persons, part two. Like I mentioned last week, Kyle talked about the unity of the persons. And the Christian church has historically confessed that the one God eternally exists in three persons. We've, we've talked about that. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And the whole essence of God eternally exists in each of the three persons. Right? The divine essence of God is not divided so that if you add the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit together, then you get one essence, right? If they can be put together to make one essence, then they can be broken apart, right? But we recognize that God is one, and the one divine essence of God eternally exists in each person of the Trinity. But the whole divine essence of each person, and yet the persons of the Trinity, are not divided. So as I have to say, again, we're thinking about God. As I read this stuff throughout, you know, the weeks, and I'm thinking, and I'm praying, and I'm looking at other, how other theologians and pastors today and throughout history have thought about this, it's been a lot of thinking, <laughs> and a lot of writing, and a lot of trying to best develop how we think about the Trinity, which is an impossible task. <laughs> You just you, you never get to a place where you say, Eureka, I understand God because he's God and we are creatures and our minds are finite and limited. Even in heaven. Think about that. Even when we get to heaven and we have glorified bodies and glorified minds and wills, we will not fully understand God. All of eternity will be spent growing in a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is so what we're doing here is. A worthy test, <laughs> but we'll never find it in, in any class we teach. So be patient with me as we think together about this. OK. Yep. So we learned a word last week. You learned um, a word last week. Um, I'm going to try to say this right. Perichoresis. Right. The unity of the persons as three subsistences of the one divine essence leads to the doctrine of perichoresis. The word perichoresis comes from a Greek word, and it communicates the idea of a chorus of singers who stand in a circle and sing to each other. In theological terms, perichoresis is the doctrine that because the divine essence is common in each person of the Trinity, then the Father is in the Son and the Spirit, and the Son is in the Father, and the Spirit, and the Spirit, and then the Father, and the Son. One God. <clears throat> now, a few verses that we can look at to affirm that the three persons mutually, we use this term, uh, inhabit one another. <clears throat> All these terms fall short when talking about God, but we'll, we'll use that term. Verses that affirm that the three persons of the Trinity uh, mutually inhabit one another. So turn to John 14, 11. John 14, 11. Okay, who wants to read that, that verse for us? John 14, 11. Kyle, go for it. Believe me that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. 
I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Okay. The beginning of that verse, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. These are verses that the church has, the Christian church has looked at in the past, um, and from these verses drawn uh, by conclusion or deduction, uh, doctrine and, and theology, that the Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Father. Back to that theological term of perichoresis. <clears throat> Second Corinthians 3.17, turn there. We'll read that together. Second Corinthians three seventeen. Who wants to read that for us? Go for it, brother. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Okay. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is. We've seen this um, in, in Scripture, uh, in Paul's writings, you'll see this idea of freedom or bondage from sin associated with, with Christ as the one who frees us from that bondage from sin, um, even by the power of the Father, the freedom from this bondage of sin. But here, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. These verses and what can be drawn from them is that the persons of the Trinity are indivisible and indivisibly united. The Father is in the Son and in the Spirit. The Son is in the Father and in the Spirit. And the Spirit is in the Father and the Son. Now we want to, although we can recognize this, and there are many other scriptures we can go to to see this, to sort of draw this out and try and build that theological structure there. Um, but we want to hold that while at the same time we want to think about the simplicity of the Trinity. The simplicity of the Trinity. Have a question? Can Thought? you give me a reference to the verse you just read the last one? 2 Corinthians 3.17? Okay, thank you. Yep. Okay. Simplicity and the Trinity. <clears throat> Our doctrine of the Trinity of God doesn't contradict the doctrine of the oneness of God because the persons of the Godhead are not distinguished as beings or as essences, but as subsistences. Now, do you remember what we tried to connect subsistences to? You remember how we defined that in the past few classes? I know it's a, one of those terms that we don't use all the time, but anything come to mind, Kyle? Uh, wasn't it like the mode of expression mm -hmm. of the divine essence or, or the personal relations? Right. Personal properties? Yep. So two good sort of complementary personal relations, personal properties. We're talking about the, uh, the, the persons of the Godhead. Okay? <clears throat> and then um, we, we looked at William Ames' helpful, helpful definition as he defined subsistences. Uh, substance is a way to talk about God's manner of being and his one essence so far as it has personal properties or persons. Okay. In different lessons throughout this class, we've said that God is a simple being. What does that mean? That God is a simple being. Has no parts. Right. Has no parts. Right. No body, parts or passions. 
simple being. That doesn't mean, of course, that God's divine essence is easy to understand. When we're talking about God being simple, it doesn't mean that he's plain or elementary. It means he is without parts, as our brother Norm said. To talk about the simplicity of God is to say that the attributes of God belong to the singular divine essence of the persons. Now, if the perfections of God belong to the essence of God, then they apply equally to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is because the one God eternally exists in three divine persons, distinguished yet indivisible, right? Distinguished yet indivisible. Now, James Dolezal, he's a modern theologian who's written some really helpful books on the doctrine of God. He's a very smart person. So when you read his books, it's like, what is he saying? And you have to read it again, and then again, and then again. And then you get to the end, and you still don't know what he said. But he's a really, uh, I think a really, he can be a helpful resource when you, when you try to get your hands around, around these things. Uh, in one of his books, God Without Parts, he says, the classical doctrine of simplicity holds that there is nothing in God that is not God. There's nothing in God that is not God. Another way to say that is God is his existence, essence, and attributes. And we'll, we'll work this out a little bit and try and think about it together. This is how the Christian church has defined divine simplicity. God is not the makeup of his attributes. He is his attributes. So if you take eternity and just wise knowledge, you put them all together like Lego blocks, and then you make, this is God, right? Because if you put them together, what does that mean? You can take them apart, right? And God is not composed of parts. He is simple. One way to describe what God is, is to say what he is not. We've been trying to use that approach as we talk about God. We can't say that about anything else in creation. So let's do a little uh, a thought experiment here. We'll, we'll use uh, the name Bill in our little thought experiment. The essence of a particular man is his humanity. Corrine is a part of humanity, right? She's a woman, right? Norm is a part of humanity. He's a man. I'm a part of humanity. We're all a part of humanity, right? Bill, for instance, is not identical to the essence of humanity. We cannot say that Bill is humanity, right? But we can say that Bill is a human. He is part of humanity, right? On the other hand, Bill has other qualities that distinguish him from other human beings. Bill may have black hair. He may have brown eyes. He may be short or tall or slim or round. He may have a beard. He may not have a beard, but he's still a human. If you take away Bill's hair, he's still a human being because hair is not part of the essence of Bill being a human, right? So when you take his hair away, he's still a human. If he puts 
and contacts and his eyes are another color. He's still a human. Okay. God, on the other hand, is his essence. So that all that is in God is identical with his essence. When we talk about simplicity in relation to the Trinity, we're saying that the whole essence of God belongs to each person of the Trinity without measure. Here's, here's another way to put it. All that is in God is God. All that is in God is God. If you remove any perfection or attribute from God, he ceases to be God because God is his perfections. Now, in order for something to, to change or to be added or taken away from God means that God's essence is able to change, which is impossible. You cannot remove any of God's perfections and still call him God. God is his attributes. This is how some Christian theologians explain this um, in a book, Confessing the Impassable God. It's a, a thicker book. It's a, pretty much a combination of essays written by theologians you know, throughout history and most, most modern theologians as they quote older theologians. But this is how they sort of put together this idea about God. Um, God is his attributes. Now, let's think about the perfections of God, because <clears throat> this has implications for a lot of other areas. How does divine simplicity help us to better understand God? For example, we know from the scriptures that God loves us, right? You know that God loves you, right, Christian? 1 John 4, 4 8 says, anyone who does not love God does not know God because what? God is love. God is his perfections. This verse teaches us that God, about God's simplicity. God does not simply show love. He is love. God's love does not diminish because God's love is God's divine essence. This means that when God says he loves you, he loves you, you can believe that he's not lying. Our sins and doubts overwhelm us sometimes. They make us feel like there is no way that God could still love us, knowing our sin, our hearts, what we've done, what we failed to do, our lack of obedience. God doesn't have to, God doesn't have a certain amount of love that he starts with and it runs low as we sin, right? You have, God has a tank of love and it's like a coffee pitcher. He pours love on your sin, he forgives you, okay? He pours more love on your sin, and then he forgives you. And that picture is slowly going down, and he's going to get to a point where there's no more love there. That's how we think about God a lot of the time. But this is how this understanding, this doctrine of God being a simple God and God being his perfections informs our own sanctification. God's love doesn't diminish. It doesn't wear out over time. We look at our own hearts, we know what we thought, what we did, what we feel, what we said, and we say, this took a lot more love to love me than it did to love you. You did some stuff, but I did some real deep, sick, serious, sinful stuff, and it takes a lot of love for that. Not with God. 
Remember what we said earlier. We attribute these perfections, the love of God even, to the essence of God. Therefore, they apply equally to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we think that the Son has all the love for us, but the Father is not as loving. He's loving, but the Son is the one who really has the love for us. We can sometimes think that the Father is infinitely wise, but the Holy Spirit is in need of our help to figure things out. Right? We attribute that infinite wisdom to the Father. The scriptures say God is love. God is wisdom, the essence of it. Love without beginning or end. God is infinitely wise, having all knowledge and all wisdom. Each person of the Trinity are one triune God. Okay? So, more of a thought experiment here. Questions. How does the infinite wisdom of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, encourage our faith? The infinite wisdom of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How does it encourage your faith? How does the infinite knowledge of God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit encourage your faith. Not just the Father, but the Son and the Holy Spirit. How does the infinite holiness of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit encourage your faith? The Holy Spirit is as holy as the Father is holy. He's not a lesser holiness. He's at work in you, the scriptures say, sanctifying you. The holiness of God, right? It's by the Spirit who is holy as God is holy, that we can even be presented holy before God. That makes Jude 24, 25 true, right? He will present us spotless and blameless before his glory with great joy. How does the infinite grace of God, the power of God, the justice of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit encourage your faith? Okay, let's be Christians that think in a Trinitarian way about our salvation, about our sanctification, about our life and community as, as believers, okay? All right, transitioning from there, <coughs> we'll think about the order of operations, also called um, the economic trinity, the order of operations. The three persons of the trinity are God without division. Because our God is triune, the works or external operations of God are indivisible. Now, we said this in the past classes that the external works of the Trinity are not divided. However, the scriptures attribute certain works to certain persons. The way the scriptures attribute these works teach us about the order of personal properties or the persons of the Trinity. Now, John Norton, he's uh, an American Presbyterian minister in the 16th century. He wrote on the operations of God in his book, The Orthodox Evangelist. And this is what he says. The manner of the working of the three persons upon the creature is answerable to the manner of their subsistences in the divine nature. People have been saying this word for a long time. I only learned this word in the past few years, but theologians have used this a long time. The Father works of himself, the Son works from the Father, John 5, 19, 5, 30. The Holy Ghost works from the Father and the Son, John 16, 13. 
Hence, though, all the works of God concerning the creature are wrought jointly by all the three persons. Distinction without division is what he's communicating there. He recognizes that the he recognizes the undivided nature of God. Then he goes on to distinguish between the persons by highlighting the works that are usually ascribed to them. He says, beginning works as creation are ascribed principally unto the first person, the Father. The carrying works on to perfection as redemption unto the second person, the Son. The perfecting of them as the application of redemption unto the third person, the Spirit. All God's ways in creation that the operations of the Trinity are involved in are not divided. Our salvation is biblically based on the Father's power and love, John 3, 16, John 10, 29. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Our salvation is biblically based in the Son's death and resurrection, Romans 4.25, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Our salvation is biblically based in the Spirit's regeneration and seal. Um, what's that? Ephesians 4.30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The different tasks of the Father, Son, and Spirit perform, help, and they inform our understanding of what's called the economic trinity, the trinity in relation to our salvation. What does the Father do? What does the Spirit do? What does the Son do? Yes, the works of the trinity are not divided, but the Spirit ascribes certain works to certain persons of the trinity. Our confession, again, <clears throat> who has their confession with them? Anybody? Phones don't count. <laughs> I have mine on my phone, too. <laughs> I actually don't have my confession. That's why I'm asking. Um, okay, yes. Brian, let me have you read um, chapter 2, paragraph 3. God and the Holy Trinity. We want to think with the church about the doctrine of God the persons, the undivided essence, and yet the distinctions that we recognize from the scriptures. So this is how we think with the church, by reading church history. Go ahead, bro. This divine and infinite being consists of three real persons, the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three have the same substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, without this essence being divided. The Father is not derived from anyone, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. All three are infinite and without beginning and are therefore only one God who is not to be divided in nature and being. Yet these three are distinguished by several distinctive characteristics and personal relations. This truth of the Trinity is the foundation of all our fellowship with God and our comforting dependence on Him. Okay, <clears throat> thank you. You hear what's said there. You, you hear this, uh, the tension, but at the same time, the continuity that they're that, that trying to, to grasp and, and communicate. 
affirming that God is one. We are, we are monotheistic We're Christians. We believe in one God, yet our one God eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? As, as I was working through this study um, uh, yesterday or Friday or whatever day it was, I came to a point where I thought there are some perfections of God that we um, usually attribute to one person of the Trinity above above another, right? Um, I'm going to ask you what, what are maybe some things that come to your mind. Like for me, when I think about um, that God is just, okay, the Father is just. You see in the Old Testament, you know, he was, there, was, there was judgment uh, out of his justice and his holiness, right? We, we look at Christ, and I know it's a big thing right now in, in sort of the wider evangelical world to talk about Christ and how he upheld justice and some have terrible views of what that means, I think. Um, but we, we can see that. But the Holy Spirit, he's just? What does that look like? How's the Holy Spirit just? Right? We think about these perfections and we apply them to maybe two over the one or one over the two. Or, you know, uh, what, about, what about you? When you think about the perfections of God, right? His justice, his mercy, his love, his blessedness, his goodness. What, what, what are some, how do you think your own view of our triune God can be lopsided at times? I'm guilty of this as well. I don't use that term to demean, but... For me, it's easier to relate to the Lord Jesus Christ because I know he has a body um, hmm. and I can see him talking, but I have a hard time with the Father because he's the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, in my limited mind, is like he, he's the junior partner. Hmm. <laughs> I don't dwell on that, but that's my initial Yeah, no, reaction. absolutely. Yeah, I my appreciate the honesty. Opinion, yeah. You know, because, like, right now I'm talking to you. I see your face. I, 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 I hear the intonation. So for me to talk to the Father is always a difficult thing. Hmm. And the Holy Spirit, why, why talk to the Holy Spirit? He's the Spirit. So, so this yeah. is just in my child's mind. These are some of my um, difficulties as a man. Um, so that's why I need um, classes like this to just bring me down to earth yeah. or to heaven. <laughs> <That's good. laughs> Ever the poet, Mr. Norm. <laughs> yeah, but that's good, though. I, I appreciate the honesty. It's, that's, that's true. I have those same thoughts and, and struggles and feel that tension, that tension at times. I mean, even when I you know, go up to do the, the prayer for the call to worship, you know, when, when I write it out, sometimes I... How do I write that? When I'm praying extemporaneously without writing anything out, I'm thinking maybe too hard sometimes <laughs> or maybe enough, you know, as I as I pray, because um, I, I, I feel the tension, too. Yeah. What about anybody else care to share? How our view can be lopsided at times. Go ahead. I guess if I may add to this. Also, <clears throat> when we relate to a person. Like, it's always like, 
Well, right now I'm talking to the Lord Jesus, but I don't want to leave the Father out of the Holy Spirit. So it's, it's like, it's a constant, like, readjusting, <coughs> like, am I ever finite, you know? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, that goes to my mind. Yeah, that's a good um, heart response to remember that we are finite. It's, I think even in that is worship and devotion, yeah. Because you're trying to reorient your mind and affections, I think, yeah. Crystal? I definitely attribute God's sovereignty to the Father. Ah, uh, um, yeah, that's good. Jesus and the Holy yeah. Spirit, yeah. like that's... Yep. Even as we're sitting in class <laughs> talking about it, like it's the automatic. Yeah. Okay, God is sovereign. That's good. That's, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> no, as we go through this class and we're talking about one in essence, three in persons, that's all of them yeah. being sovereign over it all. But it still doesn't. Yeah. Doesn't that's good. I forgot about that one. Absolutely. I 100%. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Josh? Mm-hmm. that some people think that you only pray to the Father through the Son, but then the Spirit ends up getting neglected. <coughs> people pray yeah. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, praying to God, the being. Mm-hmm. Other people pray like to Jesus, but it always seems like the Spirit of God mm-hmm. doesn't get prayed to, mm-hmm. you know, kind of thing. So yeah. almost like a, a lopsided view of, of who we are to address when we are. Yeah. When we are praying, and there's some groups who say it's this way, yeah. and others who yeah. say yeah. it can be all like there is no, you know, pat, you know, pattern. We can mm. pray to all three mm. persons together yeah. separately um, because of their, like you're saying, their different roles right. that they that they play, or um, you know, in the, yeah. in the economic community. Yep, yep, that's good too. Yep, Norm. Or, or here's another one, Jesus. Is distinct. He has the body and so on. But then you have the Father, who's the Spirit, and then you have the Holy Spirit. Like, why, why two spirits? So mm. I'm also struggling with that. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. That's a the hypostatic union the, that Jesus is truly God and truly man. Um, scriptures say, and I think it's in Hebrews, a body has been prepared for you. So. I mean, that's a whole nother conversation. But just thinking about that, um, yeah. I mean, even now that Jesus has a uh, glorified royal, a royal, but a body, right? He remains in his body now, right? So he's not in heaven. So he didn't get a body and then sort of went sort of back to the spirit. But a body has been prepared for him. And he now still currently has that body, even in heaven. And he's the first fruits of what we will be. So when you think about the Trinity and the hypostatic union, you know, there's, man, you can, books have been filled <laughs> on that mystery, and it is just that, it's a mystery. And yeah, you can feel the, the, the tension there, the tension there too, right? Yeah, that's good. All right, well, we're at, oh, Ladybug, <laughs> go for it. <clears throat> <laughs> we all working through it. <laughs> but when I consider the person of Christ, I remember, you know, what he's done. He's lived, he's died, he rose. So that aspect of his job is complete. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Right. I, I literally picture him like just sitting there waiting to return. He doesn't know when he's coming back. Not that he's not 
obviously all powerful, <clears throat> but he's his job has is on hold kind of thing. Like I I don't picture him presently working. Mm. You know, um, like the spirit is presently like yeah. with us in us. You know, drawing people through the work and you know local fellowship and yeah. You know, I, so that I just kind of like what is he? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting at the beginning of Acts, it says these are the things that um, Christ continued to do, or uses some language like that, what Jesus continued to do. Jesus, he wasn't present walking the earth in the book of Acts, uh, but it was what the Spirit was doing, yet it attributes it yeah. to what Jesus continued to do um, through, through his ministry. So um, a good word I like to use is or that I've read that I think it's good to use. Um, I got this from other people, but mission, Jesus' mission, the, the Spirit's mission, um, that Jesus' mission is fulfilled. When we think about mission, we can think about combat, <clears throat> but the scripture uses language like that to talk about the roles and the accomplishing of uh, the Christ's mission and, and dying for people and the Spirit sanctifying those people whom the Father has chosen himself but yes there are a lot of uh, um, places of for good tension when, when we're trying to think about the Trinity and think about um, the hypostatic union there it's it, it's good tension we think through it we wrestle with it we, we, we read we learn we provide Sunday school classes to um, help us to be um, sharper thinking more devotional um, Christians right more humble Christians, right? As we recognize that we're finite, but it's a, it, it's a good fight, it's a good tension, it's a good wrestle. Um, and we'll continue to, as we pick up next week and continue moving through. Norm and I were talking a little bit before, or he was telling me before class that he got to chapter eight and he's like, <laughs> I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> but we'll talk about it a little bit. We'll, we'll, we'll work through it and just think together as, as a church, okay? Well, we're at, we're at time. Let me pray for us, and you'll be dismissed. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. Um, we thank you for providing us um, your, your wisdom and the scriptures. Um, we thank you for not leaving us to ourselves, and we thank you for this the, the privilege of reading the word together, uh, to be able to think uh, together with the church, uh, the, the resources that you've preserved through church history to allow us to um, not stand in a moment in time um, independent from uh, the wisdom of, 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 of God throughout the history of the church. And so, Lord, help us to, to, to think well, to think clear, um, to think with hearts of devotion, humility, as, as my brother mentioned. And um, we pray that you would glorify yourself, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, help us to live and think as uh, Trinitarian Christians. Um, and grow us in that, that effort, Lord, as we're all on this, on this pilgrimage to, to uh, learn um, and love our triune God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.